navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Uh, thank you for joining me. As always, so happy to have you all uh, on my programs. And I look through, I start to scroll through the list of who is on so far of the about 450 of us. And I do see a lot of uh, colleagues. I see a lot of people who could be giving this lecture instead of me, people with more experience than me. I see some adversaries that do the defense side. So I'm going to really try and go out of my way in this program to give pointers for both plaintiff and defense, even though we all know I do plaintiff's work and that's my area of specialty. I've never defended a case in my life. I probably never will, um, but uh, I can give sort of what missteps I've seen from the other side as well. And uh, again, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, defense medical malpractice attorneys attending my program, seeing my playbook, seeing how I work things up. It's funny. A lot of people always ask me, why do you say all this stuff? Why do you, you know, you just wrote a book about how you litigate cases and aren't you worried people are going to steal your stuff and aren't you worried your adversaries are going to see what you're doing and it's going to help them defend the cases better against you? And the answer is no. Everybody, you know, everybody does it their own way. Uh, what I like to share is what I've done, and you can take whatever you want from it, however it helps you. If it helps you defend your cases better, if it helps you defend cases against me better, I'm all for it. If it helps you work up your cases better, that's the goal. Uh, we are community. We wouldn't be here without each other. The push, the pull. We need adversaries on both sides for the system to work, and we want it to work at its highest level, and being as informed as we can be uh, is the way we can do it. So I also, I want to give a plug as always to the Academy. Uh, these programs are free. If you feel like you've been getting a lot of benefit from the programming of the Academy, from my lectures, from other lectures, please join. You'll get a discount by the fact that you've already attended CLEs, reach out to Michelle. You could get involved. You can change the law. You can screen court of appeals judges. You could get on our boards. You can give CLEs. It's such a great organization. So I really encourage you, if you're not a member, to join. Okay, so we are now, we are in the series talking about how to litigate medical malpractice cases and how to successfully do it. Um, we are in part two. Last month in part one, we talked about the initial screening from that first call contact, is it a case you want to take on? And now in part two, we're going to go to what I believe is the best natural next step once you have that signed retainer, once you have all the medical records. And that is getting your experts on board, getting them on board early. I'm going to talk today about why I feel it's so important to get them on board early, how to get those experts, where to find them, what you can expect to pay for them, how to use your experts properly to help you build your case, uh, and how to avoid so many pitfalls uh, that I've seen. I can't tell you how many lawyers, good lawyers I've spoken to that don't always do medical malpractice case, but once in a while one comes across uh, their desk or it's a, a prior client they have a close relationship with and they want to help them and help them in their medical malpractice case. And they reach out to me in one of my one-on-ones or just to seek advice or guidance, as I'm happy to do. For those of you who haven't yet, please go to my website and uh, sign up for a one-on-one. -on -one. They're complimentary. We can talk about anything and everything, and I do. And a lot of lawyers have shared with me, 
what do you think about this case I have? And settlement value. It's a medical malpractice case and it's coming up for trial. And I don't know if the defense is going to offer anything. And I want to know about, you know, what, what you think it's worth. And when I get into it and talk to details, I ask about their experts. And that's when things get a little quiet on the other end of the Zoom. Like, well, you know, I had this expert. He's, you know, even though this is a cardiology case, he's an internist. He's not really a cardiologist. Or right, an internist look at a generalist look at an orthopedic case that this is. And they kind of told me initially it was a case, but now they're saying they don't feel strong enough or they're not going to come to trial. What do you think I should do? And, you know, I scratch my head. And I say, listen, you know, you need to like jump into action right away, get the right expert, find out even if you have a case, and then you may need to have a really hard conversation with your client about why you need to drop your case, or hopefully you can get a good expert who can still support it and help you out moving forward to trial. What we do as litigators is always a chess game, right? You have to see the moves as we move forward in the litigation. And when you've been doing it for as long as I have, I think I'm at 27 years now doing this, um, the experience starts to come in where you've seen a lot. You've litigated the cases all the way. You've gone through depositions, summary judgment motions, mediations, trials, appeals, retrials, and you learn from that so that the next time when you're starting on the path of litigating one of these cases, you're like, wait a second, remember what happened last time when we got in trouble because we didn't have an additional expert on the causation issue? And then you make sure to have that next time around. So what I hope to do in all my lectures is share with you my experiences uh, because I've, I've won, I've lost, I've learned, and that's how you learn how to you know, move forward smarter and better. And in a medical malpractice case, experts are the key. They're huge, huge, hugely important. They form the foundation of your case. We are lawyers. We are not doctors. Even if you have a medical degree and a law degree, chances are there's a reason you're a lawyer and a doctor. Okay, And that means that you're not an expert in one field of medicine, because if you're such an expert in one field of medicine, you wouldn't be practicing law, you'd probably be practicing medicine. So as much as we all think, and those of us who are doing a lot of personal injury work, medical malpractice work for many years, we've learned a lot of medicine, right? We've had to read through records, we've had to meet with experts, we've had to question experts. Um, we've learned a lot, but we're not doctors. And you need a good doctor, you need a good expert to form the foundation of your case. I want you to picture one of those um, human pyramids. You see sometimes cheerleading teams do or squads. We have the, the strongest ones on the bottom and everybody climbs on top until the top of the pyramid. Your experts in a medical malpractice case are the bottom of that pyramid. Sometimes it's one big strong expert that can carry it for you. Sometimes you need two, sometimes you need three, sometimes you need four. We're going to talk about why you might need multiple experts, but they're the foundation. And it's important that you build a proper foundation at the very start of these cases. You can't end up top heavy later on. Oftentimes, I'm asked to maybe take over a case. A client will reach out to me saying that they have a medical malpractice case. They're not happy with their current attorney 
where their current attorney finally tells them they don't really have an expert that can support their case. They should probably seek another opinion. And then when that client comes to me and I say, okay, tell me a little bit about the case. Where are you in the litigation? And when I learn that depositions have been done already of the defendants, that's the end of the story for me. I'm not going to get involved in that case because I'm not going to get involved in a case where I haven't had the opportunity to prepare, to learn the medicine, to cross-examine at a deposition the defendant physician and have to rely on somebody else's preparation, someone else that wasn't good enough to see the case all the way through for whatever reason. Maybe they didn't have the right expert on board. Okay. So you never want to be in that situation where you're on the tail end of a case and you're worried that you don't have a good enough case. And usually the first time you're going to come across that is in a summary judgment motion, whatever side you're on. Usually the plaintiff will get hit by the defense with a summary judgment motion saying you have no case. And the defense will often do that smartly so to flush you out. Do you have experts? You're saying all this, you filed a claim, you filed the lawsuit, but we don't even think you have any experts to back it up. So we're going to move to dismiss your case. Show us what you have. Right. And many times I understand from my defense colleagues, that's when the case goes bye-bye because they flush them out. They either don't have an expert or they don't have the right expert or a good expert. Uh, So you have to know in this chess game that that's coming down the pike. You have to know that these cases do not settle early. Just take my word for it. They don't settle early. All right. No matter. And we talked a little bit about this in part one. You think you've got a great case. You send a claim letter. Um, you say, hey, let's mediate. You get a good response. Hey, thank you. We'll look into it. We need to review it. A couple months go by. No, we don't. We reviewed it. We don't think there's anything there. Sorry. Right. Then you file suit. Then the lawyers get involved Then the lawyers work up the case. The defense lawyers, they know what they're doing. They have experts they've worked with primarily on the same exact case you're bringing probably because they're representing those same types of doctors and those experts. They have built in experts on the defense side, their clients, their clients, colleagues, not hard for them to get answers. It's much harder for a plaintiff's lawyer to find a doctor willing to point a finger at another doctor. That's not an easy thing to do. So it's not as easy for plaintiffs to get experts as it is for defendants to get experts. All right. But they're not going to settle the case. You're going to have to show you've got the goods. You're going to have to build your case up. So you need to prepare the right way. For those of you who have taken on a medical malpractice case, thinking it's a good case, maybe a nurse reviewed it, maybe a generalist reviewed it, you filed it, you're underway, but you don't really have a specific expert willing to go to trial. That's not good. You need to immediately get the right expert on the case. All right. So build that foundation at the start. That's what we do as litigators. We prepare every case from day one as if it's going to a trial, as if it's going to a jury, as if it may go up on appeal. We want to make sure that we know what elements we need to prove in our case. We need to know what potential defenses there are, how strong we feel about it. We want to know what experts we need to establish those elements. That's in any case. So even more so in a medical malpractice case, you need to get those experts on board early. All right. And for a legal reason, you cannot file a lawsuit without accompanying the summons and complaint with a certificate of merit. 
And the CPLR, I'll give you the rule if you want to look it up. It's 3012-A. That's the one that um, applies to the requirement in New York State for filing a certificate of merit. Now, I know many of you are not in New York State. If you're listening on the podcast, I know you're from all over the country, other parts of the world. So you want to check with your specific jurisdiction and what's required in a medical malpractice case. And that's generally a case against a physician, case against a podiatrist, a case against a dentist or a dental practitioner, because it's going to be something similar to a certificate of merit. Some jurisdictions require you go through a private arbitration panel first or a committee first before you can file. So make sure in whatever jurisdiction you're in, you know the prerequisites for filing a medical malpractice case. But in New York, pursuant to the rule I just gave you, CPLR 3012-A, you have to file a certificate of merit. And here's the first part of what it says. I'm just going to read it to you so you, you have an idea of where I'm going here. In that certificate of merit, you have to establish that you, the attorney, have reviewed the facts of the case. You've consulted with at least one physician, physician in medical malpractice area who knows about medical malpractice, or at least one dentist in a dental malpractice case, and at least one podiatrist in a podiatric malpractice case. Okay, so that's not saying you could speak with an internist about a podiatric medical malpractice case. You can't speak with a cardiologist or a nurse about a dental malpractice case. You have to speak with the right practitioner, okay? And they have to be licensed to practice in New York or another state is permitted if they're reasonably familiar with the standard of care in New York state on the issues in this action. And that based on your meeting with that expert, that you, the attorney, have concluded on the basis of such review, that there's a reasonable basis to commence this litigation, okay? There's a lot more sections to that rule that you can go check out, but the gist of it is you can't file a lawsuit in New York State unless you've consulted with the proper practitioner being a physician, a dentist, or a podiatrist for the given case. That's it. And if you're filing a lawsuit and you haven't consulted with one of them, then you're filing a false certificate of merit. If you're filing a lawsuit and you haven't filed a certificate of merit, then it's, uh, it's insufficient and it's void and it's dismissible. Okay. So those are the rules of engagement. Not only is it a requirement that you have an expert that says that there's merit to the case, but it makes practical sense. Why would you go into battle without a weapon? Right. I mean, you need to have the expert because you know you're going to get flushed out in summary judgment. And an expert will help you frame your complaint, find the specific areas of malpractice, educate you on the medicine, give you information for you to learn about the medicine in your case. So you're not blindly relying on an expert. That's another thing. When you're interviewing or speaking with experts, uh, to be involved in your case on your side, plaintiff or defense, you need to press them. Don't just let them say, oh, you've got a great case. I've handled tons of these. They're going to see my name. They're going to fold like a house of cards. I get nervous when experts tell me that, okay? I'll say, well, what about if they claim that this defense is it's a risk of the procedure? Isn't this a risk? Have you done this procedure that you're saying this doctor committed malpractice doing? How often have you done this procedure? 
Think about questions that might come up on cross-examination of your expert. Challenge your expert before you agree that that expert's going to be on board and, and in your corner, right? You need to know that you've got the goods to back you up. Also, you want to make sure as a plaintiff and as a defendant, when you hire an expert, if they're willing to step into a courtroom, get on that witness stand and call out another physician. Some doctors will say, listen, I'll review the case, but you can't put my name to it. I'll tell you what I think. And I'm not, I don't testify. I just review. Okay. Find that out. Ask that question when you're screening your expert. Okay. You want an expert who's going to testify, who's willing to go to court and testify, who's willing to work with you and fill out uh, an affirmation in support of your motion for summary judgment, who will fill out an affirmation in support of your motion opposing summary judgment. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D-579. Again, that's P-O-D-579. So let's get into where do you get these experts from? How do you get them? What's the deal? What do they cost? How do you decide which experts? Here's where I'm going to continue to open up my playbook a little bit further and tell you what we do at my firm. So initially when we get, you have to get all of the medical records, okay? The records from where you think the malpractice or your client thinks the malpractice may have occurred. If there's any prior records showing a prior condition or prior treatment history, you want those. And then you want all the medical records up to date to see, okay, assuming there was malpractice uh, at the hospital a year ago, what's happened since then, okay? Is the person having a really hard time? Is the person doing fine? Is there definitely a permanent injury? Are they still treating? You need to have the whole picture. And any expert that you're going to engage is going to want to have that whole picture also. They're going to see past treatment, the treatment at issue, and then treatment to date. That's how you put everything into its picture. So what we do at my firm is we will get all the records first. Once we have all the records, we will review them in-house, our lawyers. I'll review them usually, or my partner, Jason Friedman, or our associate, Michael Solomon, all board members here at the Academy. We'll look through these records and we'll sit on our desk and we'll pull up Google and the medical dictionaries and research, and we'll start typing in terms that may be unfamiliar to us. We start reading the records and try and get a picture, try and get a chronology. Chronologies are really helpful of what happened, all right? It, you know, this is the big date of the surgery. What were the dates leading up to it? What were the dates after? Who was seen? Which doctors? When were the MRIs? So you need to get really organized organize the medical records, and read them. And if you've never read through a chart before, you'll find that they're generally organized one way or another, either chronologically by date, or sometimes they'll have all the operative reports in one section, all the nurses' notes in one section, all of the medical uh, uh, medicine and pharmacological orders and prescriptions and drugs uh, in another section. So you'll start to learn what to look for, and you can make up some time, even in a big record of scanning through it and getting to what you need to. So the first thing we do is we read through all the records and we try and get a sense, do we see something's there 
do we not? And we have that expertise having been doing this for so many years that we generally get a takeaway like, hey, I think there's something here, or I definitely don't think there's anything here, or maybe, maybe not. So depending on our review, we then go to the next level. If we look at it and say, yeah, I just don't see it's here, then generally we'll reject the case. And we'll explain why to the client, why we don't think there's anything there. Maybe it's a statute of limitations problem. Maybe what our client told us, oh, they never did this. And we find out, yeah, they did do that. And they talked to you about it. And here's the test. Whatever it is that makes you feel confident it's not a case, you explain it to the client, you reject the case, you tell them what the statute of limitations is and encourage them to get a second opinion. If it's a case that we see and we're like, yeah, this definitely looks like a case. For example, there's a subsequent note from another doctor saying, uh, patient X went to so-and-so for this treatment. I reviewed the treatment records and I see that uh, this, this prior doctor put the wrong inputs into the machine and that resulted in you know, cutting off the leg or blinding an eye with a LASIK surgery, whatever it may be. You see that you're like, all right, I think this is definitely a case. More likely than not, it'll probably fall in that gray area, right? It could be, maybe could not be. And then we'll have the practical discussion. Do we want to spend the money on an expert on this case? Do we think it's worth it? Are the damages there? This is sort of the stuff we talked about, whether you want to take the case to begin with. And you've taken it to begin with because you think there may be something there, but now you've reviewed it. You're not sure. You don't feel 100% comfortable in rejecting it because maybe it's a case. You don't feel 100% comfortable and just saying, yeah, let's do it. Um, but you, you, you want to dig a little bit deeper before jumping in full bone. So in that scenario, there are services that are not expert doctors in that specific area, but there are generalist doctors, there are nurses, there are, uh, lately there have been organizations that have physicians based in, outside of the country, primarily in India, where the rates are very low. You can send them all the records uh, online. You upload it to a portal. They can organize them for you. They can give you opinions. They can uh, send you some medical research. And we have found that those types of services, pound for pound, they don't cost as much as going direct to a medical expert in your area, uh, in that field. Uh, and it's a good way to balance not spending too much money to at least get another layer of screening beyond what you've done. And I know you're gonna ask me who to use and give you names. And what I can tell you is um, look at the end of our materials. It lists all the Academy sponsors and many of our Academy sponsors can assist you with that, with that initial screening, okay? Um, of course, you can always reach out to me. My email address is right there, however I can point to it, uh, on a specific issue. And I'm happy to offline give you some recommendations. Um, but there are plenty of services out there that for a reasonable cost can screen a case, give you an opinion, uh, give you some links to some medical research on the specific areas, okay? So that's always a really good first step. And then if they get back to us, and they say, yeah, there's nothing here, and it kind of confirms what you thought, then you can make a decision, all right, let's just reject the case, or say, ah, I still want to pursue it. Let's, let's find a specific medical expert and spend the money and do it, 
Okay. You'll have more information. You could have a discussion with the client, tell them about your first layer of review. Um, and again, it depends on whether or not you think it's worth your time and your money to invest in this case. Now, in the scenario where we review the records and we say, yeah, we think there's something here, then we skip over that initial less expensive screening process and we go right to an expert to get on board for the case so we can file a certificate of merit and we'll have somebody to help us uh, build the case, try, go to trial for us, be there in a summary judgment situation. We'll spend the money and get the right expert. And the way we find those experts, depending on what you need, and we'll talk about the different types of experts and how many you may need. Um, again, our sponsors here have access to whatever kind of medical expert you need. They can help you find the right expert. There are many, many services out there. And you can also ask colleagues, or you may know of some. Uh, we have a pretty good Rolodex, if you remember what that is before it was all computer files that you can flip through, now it's on, on computer. But we call it our Rolodex, our black book of experts we've worked with over the years who we've really liked. So I may have been on trial 10 years ago in a cardiology matter with an expert in cardiology who I liked working with, and then I have a new case come up and it's a cardiac issue. So I'll reach out to that expert. Same thing with an internist or a urologist or a GI, gastroenterology. So uh, if you've been doing this long enough, you may have experts you've worked with already and you go right to them, um, or you reach out to colleagues. There are plenty of colleagues uh, who, and many of mine who are on this um, webinar, I'll give a shout out to my buddy, Glenn Virchik. I see you on there. Uh, and Glenn is an amazing medical malpractice attorney and he and I will often speak. I'll say, I have this kind of case. Do you have a good expert, anyone you like? I'll always reach out to colleagues and ask them for recommendations. I find that to be the best because then they could say, oh yeah, I was on trial. This doctor was great at trial or I have a really good specialist here, very responsive. Like anything else, referrals are always the best. So you can do that. Um, so there are services, there are colleagues. If you run into a jam, just reach out to me. I'm always happy to help. If I, can, if I have someone that I can put you in touch with, I always open to sharing my experts. So that's how you find them. But ultimately, you're going to need the expert for the reasons I discussed. Now, the nurses and the doctors abroad, they're not sufficient for filing a, uh, a certificate of merit, in my opinion, if you read the statute. Some people will file it, though, anyway, once they get a green light from, from uh, a non-practicing in New York physician. Um, again, you're best off with getting that physician on board right away. And what will happen is you will reach out to the physician. You'll explain the case, ask them if they think they can help, find out what their fee schedule is, ask them to send you over their fee schedule, which most experts will have, usually an hourly basis uh, based on their rate. And depending on the type of expert uh, is going to be how much it's going to cost you. So if you think about the cost that you, you know, an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon uh, and let's say you want to get the top person in the in New York uh, who operates on people's brains and writes about it, you know, it's probably going to cost you a lot more per hour. You may be spending upwards of $1,000 an hour. Uh, they're most likely, I would expect you'll see a range from experts from anywhere from $400 to $700 or $800 an hour. And the money adds up fast. And that's just for one doctor. 
these reviews that aren't, you know, the full-on doctor, the screening services I'm talking about, they're going to be much less expensive. You're probably in between $75 and $150 an hour, okay? But there's a reason. You know, if you want a top doctor for your case, you're going to have to pay for that doctor's time. They have practices, they're busy. And if you want them to be responsive and be on time, you're going to have to pay their fees. And if you have multiple doctors on your case, it's going to get really expensive. So that's why many lawyers shy away from medical malpractice cases, because to do it right, you got to pay to play. You got to open up your checkbook and you got to be able to afford it, whether you have money in your firm or personal money or a credit line, you have to bankroll these cases and you have to be honest with yourself. If you cannot afford to get good experts on board early and you're going to try and wing it, you are doing a disservice to your client. You may be committing legal malpractice. If you have a good case and you know you're going to need to get top experts on board, big damages case, then connect with another firm. Either do co-counsel arrangement, or refer it to that firm, work out a referral fee arrangement. Our firm does that quite often with many lawyers on a regular basis. So if you have a relationship with a firm um, who you know, like mine, handles these types of cases, reach out to them, work with them. You'll learn something through it and, and, and it may help you to then bankroll and work on future cases yourself, um, but do your client right by making sure you get a firm involved with the right experts, as many are needed to build up the case, right? So you can find the experts, you want to retain them, you want to send them the records, and then you want to hear back from them what they have to say, whether they think you have a case. If they say yes, again, press them on why. Put forth potential defenses you're concerned about. Um, if they say no, ask them why. Say, well, would you consider this? Or would this make a difference? Or that make a difference? And again, this is on the plaintiff side and on the defense side. You need to know what your experts are going to say. You know, and, and I'm going to talk about a case that I started to talk about. Um, and I'll probably, you know, I'll jump to it in a moment. But I had really good experts that educated me early on before I filed suit. And I reached out to the defense and it was two major hospitals. And I sent a letter and I spelled out all of our areas that our experts said were departures. And I said, run this by your experts. Let me know if you want to talk. And after a couple of months, they said, no, our experts don't see anything here. And I just know because I had good experts and I did the research that to come back with a response like that, that we don't see anything here, it's just nonsense. They obviously didn't want to spend either the money or the time or roll up their sleeves or whatever it was. But whether you're on the plaintiff side or the defense side, get a good, solid expert. Don't ask somebody in-house. Ask somebody who you would bring to trial, okay? Run it by them. Press them on. Put yourself in the opposite role. How would you respond to this? How would you handle that? That's how you're going to know if you have a good expert. Um, and then you hope you, you, you have the right thing. You'll often want to ask experts for um, legal medical research to back up. Don't just take their word for it. They say, oh, yeah, you have to have make sure that this dose is administered within the first three hours or it's no good. OK, well, they didn't do that. So that sounds good. But can you give me anything to look at? Um, you have any studies, research? Can you point me in the right direction? Because if they can and they're like, well, I can't but that's my opinion, hmm, all right? Press them, press your experts. Now, what type of experts are you gonna need? 
uh, at the start of the case. Depending on the case will depend on what types and how many experts you're gonna need. And I'm gonna give you a couple of examples just to get the, the mind going. And sometimes you don't really know which expert you need. You need one expert to tell you if you need another expert or you need to do research because you're not even sure. You may run it by one doctor and they, that doctor may say, listen, you may need to bring in an infectious disease expert. I mean, I can talk to you about what to look for, but I don't do infectious disease. So sometimes you're, the expert you get on early can help direct you on what other experts to pull in. But let's look at some examples. Let's say you have a case that is a, someone comes to you, they have prostate cancer, um, it's spread, it's all throughout their body, and they don't know how it was missed. They went for annual physicals. How did, how did this happen? Where they're in this situation now where they're being told that their time on earth is now limited to maybe five to 10 years because the cancer spread throughout their body and it's not curable. So you're gonna get all these records, you're gonna look at them and you're gonna see that they did in fact go to their general practitioner, primary care physician for many, many years. And you're gonna look and see, hmm, did that doctor do any prostate specific antigen test? That's a PSA test, um, which should be done once a man hits a certain age or comes from a certain demographic and age, PSA test should be regularly done. That's the standard of care. Was that PS, maybe the PS test, PSA test was never done? And that's a departure. Maybe the PSA test was done and came back high, but wasn't acted upon. So you're going to want to get an expert who's a primary care physician or an internist who would be able to say, yeah, the standard of care is for someone older than 50, um, they should have their PSA checked at their physicals regularly to screen for this. And not doing that is a departure. All right, well, that's good. Okay, now I've got an internist. But let's say in the same case, that internist finds uh, maybe it's a slightly elevated PSA, and then ultimately they refer the patient, your client, to a urologist who does a biopsy. And then the biopsy comes back, and the patient's told it's a clean biopsy, there was no cancer there. Or the patient doesn't hear anything. Yeah, I went to this urologist. They did a biopsy. They told me if I hear something, uh, you know, if something's bad, they'll let me know. Otherwise, there's nothing to worry about. Next thing I know, I'm peeing blood and I go and I'm told I have extensive cancer. So what do you do? You now need a urological expert to find out what the standard of care is for biopsies and when to get the results and what the standard of care is for relaying those results. I had a case once for, where a prominent urologist did a biopsy. The results came back positive for prostate cancer, for aggressive prostate cancer, and the results were never shared with my client. And the defense was, we told the client to follow up in two weeks, and the client didn't follow up. You know, um, The defense was, what kind of person goes for a biopsy and is concerned and doesn't call up the doctor and follow up after a couple of months? Okay, so you need a urological expert. Now, what about causation? Let's say they caught everything. Let's say the internist caught the fast PSA high level, got them to the urologist. The urologist did a biopsy, came back positive for cancer, referred them at that point to an oncologist. The oncologist may have said, listen, your doctors found this, but I'm sorry to tell you, you have an extremely aggressive form of cancer. Um, it spread very quickly. It looks like it's already spread beyond your prostate into your body. We're going to do the best we can. But even if it was, it was caught early, 
But unfortunately, this type of cancer, you know, is you, you, you have the same prognosis and it's not a good one. So you're going to need a causation expert. You're going to need that oncologist to say, no, no, no. If they caught it early with this PSA, if they did this biopsy early and got the results early, and I saw this patient, it still would have been contained within the prostate. We could have done radiation therapy. We could have done a prostatectomy, which is removing the prostate. We could have done all kinds of hormone treatment. There are lots of options that would have been available if this was caught timely. But since it wasn't, by the time they got in the hands of an oncologist, it was too late. So you're going to need not only liability experts, perhaps an internist and a urologist, but you're going to need a causation expert, such as an oncologist. So you're going to need to line all of those up before you start your case to build that foundation of that you know, pyramid. You're going to have your internist next to your urologist, next to your oncologist. That is your team, and they all need to be on board. Because without them, let's say your internist and urologist say, oh, yeah, this clear departure. They didn't timely do a PSA test. They didn't timely do a biopsy or give the results. Well, what if it turns out the defendants say, yeah, that's all well and good, but this type of cancer wouldn't have made a difference if they caught it early. It still would have been the same prognosis. This person was unfortunately done for. So the delay doesn't really matter. We see that happen in cases. So you're going to need an oncologist on causation. So you're going to have to spend the money. You're going to have to get three experts and you're gonna have to make sure they're all on board, whatever side of the case you're on. Similarly, in the medical malpractice field, we often come across failure to timely diagnose breast cancer cases, where maybe the woman complains that they feel a lump in their breast, but the gynecologist doesn't, uh, says, oh, that's not a big deal. I think that's a skin tag or who knows what, and they don't act on it. That may be malpractice. Maybe there's a mammogram done that either wasn't read properly or they missed it. You're going to need a radiologist to look at that case. And again, you may need an oncologist. Is this fast moving? Would it have made a difference? Okay. You may need from the oncologist to get into the matter of damages. Let's say your client says, listen, I had to go get a double mastectomy and have both breasts removed because of how it spread or just a mastectomy in one breast. But I believe if they caught it earlier, I only would have needed a, a lumpectomy. They just would have had to remove the lump from my breast and I could have saved my breast. Okay, but then you get underway with litigation without an oncologist on board. And then you start hearing the defense saying, listen, you know, the standard of care now for treatment is not to just do a lumpectomy. Most women are getting mastectomies, having their breasts removed or double mastectomies, even, you know, without it spreading further. Uh, that is, you know, so how strong is your damages case? Is it strong to say, look, she wouldn't have needed a mastectomy? If the defense says, listen, statistics show 75% of women with this diagnosis uh, opt for a mastectomy anyway. So these are all things that you need to look at. All right. You need to make sure you cover all of these bases because just having a departure expert on board doesn't do you any good unless you have a causation expert on board as well. In the last 10 minutes, I'm going to give you an example of a case that I recently uh, brought to resolution. Um, which perfectly highlights this. This was the one that I told you about uh, just before about how I sent a letter and they told me basically they don't see anything here. And so what happened was my client and these, uh, these experts are in your materials. Um, I'm presented with a situation where my client goes to one hospital for what's supposed to be an outpatient 
surgery for a knee surgery. What I come to learn and find out is during that outpatient arthroscopic knee surgery at this hospital, there's anesthesia complications during the surgery. They have a hard time getting my client breathing again at the end of the surgery. The client's on a ventilator. He's married, he's in his late thirties. He has three young children and the hospital just can't get him off the ventilator by the end of that night. So they refer him to a neighboring hospital that has a special critical care unit. He goes to that hospital. He's there day after day. They, they think he's getting better. He's not getting better. They're trying to figure out why, they're, why he can't get his lungs back and going. He should be able to. And after a week of being in that hospital, he codes out, his heart stops working, and he tragically dies. And the family comes to me and says, you know, what happened here? There's got to be malpractice. So immediately, of course, I get all of the records from both facilities and I'm wondering, did the surgeon do something wrong? Did the anesthesiologist do something wrong? Maybe he shouldn't have undergone surgery as a big guy, like football player size. Maybe that he shouldn't have been cleared. Did they properly screen him for surgery? Well, what happened at the ICU afterwards? Was he that far gone? Was he savable? Why did he die? Did he die? Was it a lung issue? Was it something else? There's so many things that we had to wrap our mind around. And ultimately, we looked into all of this. I consulted with an anesthesiologist. Um, first, I did initial screening just to get an idea of whether they see any departures uh, from in what areas. And I wasn't happy. A lot of the initial screenings told me, yeah, it looks like this is just a, all of these are just sad complications, normal complications. And I, I didn't accept that. I said, no, 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 this can't be. So I dug deep and I reached into my pocket and we hired uh, an orthopedic expert to see if there was anything done wrong in the surgery. We hired an anesthesiology expert, a top anesthesiologist. We hired an ICU expert, okay, to look at all of these different issues of what's going on. And what we started to learn was that there might've been an issue with the anesthesia, the, whether they chose the right one, whether it was administered properly. When he was coming out of anesthesiology, out of, out of the anesthesia, did they extubate him too early? What were all of these things? And it turned out it didn't look like there was any surgical malpractice. The surgery actually went fine. This all happened right at the end after the surgeon left. So we didn't name the surgeon in the case, but we named the anesthesiologist. We named the hospital and the ICU doctors. And then our ICU doctor started looking into it and he said, listen, I think, I think your client had propofol infusion syndrome. And I said, what in the world is propofol infusion syndrome? So of course I hit the books, I start re researching it. And it turns out propofol is a very commonly used uh, sedative that they give to patients in surgery to help sedate them. Uh, when they're in the ICU, they often give it to help sedate them when they're having issues. And this expert starts telling me that, listen, if they start giving too much propofol infusion syndrome, propofol, there's signs and symptoms. They start having fevers they don't know where they came from. They have elevated certain levels in their blood. Their kidneys start having problems. It becomes toxic at, so, at, at extensive levels. So it becomes like this toxic medicine in your body that can affect all your organs and you can ultimately die from it. So he says, I think that's what was going on here. So we look into it deeper and I say, you know what? I'm going to do my research. So I start reading everything I can find online about propofol infusions. And I start saying, listen, we need a propofol expert, not just an ICU doctor. 
So then I found the, the, the probably one of the world's top uh, experts. And it turns out this person was what's called a PharmD, has a doctorate in pharmacology. And I did not know that most major intensive care units um, will have a PharmD, a doctorate in pharmacology, in a pharmacy, in the ICU, and make sure there's no bad interactions between all the drugs. This is the person who helps doctors decide what should be administered, what should be discontinued. And I found this uh, expert uh, doctor, but his doctor was not medical doctor, it was a doctorate in pharmacology, who had done studies, who had written extensively on propofol. And I had him review the case. And he said, oh yeah, this was definitely a propofol infusion. This is what he died from. So now I had all these experts. I had four experts, anesthesiologist, uh, no, three, anesthesiologist, um, ICU doctor, and pharmacology uh, expert, right? Three of them. And based on that, I Zoomed with all of them, recorded it. I spent an hour. They all explained the anesthesia issues, the ICU issues, how propofol works. I took notes. My associates sat in on it. And then based on that, we were able to craft the complaint, craft our claim letter. And then I brought in, I wanted to know what the case was worth. Maybe we were able to mediate it early. So then I got an economist involved and got my client's tax returns. So you have in your materials, you have an affirmation from my three liability and causation experts, and you have my economic report on this case to show you, I did all of this before even filing suit, getting all these experts on board. So I knew my case and I was friendly with my adversaries. And I told them, I said, listen, I've got top experts. I'm not talking out of my other end. All right. You know me. I'm telling you I have experts. This is what they're telling me. Run it by your experts. And we litigated the case. They didn't want to settle it. We do depositions. I question probably 10 or 12 different physicians in the case. And sure enough, the hospitals moved for summary judgment. I said, are you kidding me? You're trying to flush me out. You don't think I have experts? I've told you I do. So what you have in your materials are the affirmations from my experts that I use not only to oppose summary judgment, but I cross move for summary judgment. I put them on the defense saying, we have the top propofol guy in the world. Who do you have? Okay. So we started flushing them out. And guess what happened before oral argument was set? I finally get calls, we're ready to mediate the case, all right? Ultimately, um, we mediated a couple of times and we finally resolved the case and we got a good result, but that never would have happened if I didn't spend the money to build up this case. And our firm spent about $70,000 to get to this point to settle the case. Not all cases cost that much to work up. You don't always need that many experts, but it was worth the investment. And I informed my clients all the way what I was spending money on, why I was doing it, why I was getting these experts. I was ready for summary judgment. I was ready to push back and cross move. And the case got resolved and it didn't have to be tried. But if I tried to bring this case without the right experts to help me frame the complaint, to educate me, to tutor me, again, I had them all and we'll talk about this in future parts. I had my experts prepare me for all the depositions. So I knew how to go at these doctors. I knew what questions to ask. And that's how you work with experts in a medical malpractice to build your case. And then ultimately, you're going to want to build out your economics and your, your, uh, your damages 
not only potentially with a, an economist, but perhaps a life care planner or a vocational expert. You're going to want to bring all those in to build up the damages in your case as well. Big cases need big investments, need the right experts, the proper experts, and that's how you can have success in litigating these cases. You do not want to wait until that summary judgment motion shows up and you don't have the right experts on board. That's when you run into problems. So with that being said, I'll let Michelle do her final thing. We'll wind up this first hour and then hopefully you have some questions we can get into. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD631. Again, that's POD631. So I know we're at the end of the first hour. Today I'm going to address some Q&A and a lot of good stuff comes up during the Q&A. Also, uh, if you need to catch this or catch earlier ones or listen to it again or catch the Q&A, the podcast always goes live within a week or two of this live CLE. So you can always catch my podcast, which I know many of you do, and you're probably listening to it right now on a podcast. Um, You can find all of these series and all the prior series I've done, not only on the Academy, but at the Mentor ESQ and uh, wherever you get podcasts like Apple, Spotify. So you can listen, watch the videos. It's really easy to find. And you can even get credit uh, through my website, through the Academy as well. So I also want to let you know that um, I'm going to get to the Q&As now. But the reason I, I say everything that I do about getting these experts and pressing them early and spending the money to do it is because I've learned I have dropped a case or two. Even when I thought the expert gave me a good review after doing a deposition of a doctor that I thought the doctor presented really well and gave some interesting answers that weren't really clear in the medical records. I've gone back to my expert and when I'm not comfortable, I called my colleague on the other side and say, I got good news for you. I'm dropping the case. I told my client, we're not going to proceed. This is how I feel. So, you know, you've got to be true to the case. You don't want to go on a suicide mission for you or your client, and you have to have the goods or not and be real about it. If you don't have a case, you have no business moving forward with it. If you've got a case, commit to it, spend the money and move forward with it. All right. So let's get into some Q&A. Please, I encourage you all to put any comments, questions you have. I'm going to try and go in order of the Q&As that are up there and uh, get through it within this next half hour. If you need to jet, always feel free. You can reach out to me for a one-on-one or shoot me an email. Carl, I did get your email and I'll answer that after the CLE wraps up and give you uh, the information uh, that you are seeking. So thank you for that. All right. Um, Jack is asking about hurdles I've had to overcome or have to be overcome uh, when you wanna bring a lawsuit against doctors and hospitals regarding COVID malpractice. So I've not handled any of those. Uh, The governor at the time uh, basically provided immunity to hospitals for anything that they could allege was closely related to COVID, told statute of limitations. A lot of this was going on in the last couple of years. So if a case comes across my desk and in any way it appears to be a failure to diagnose COVID or malpractice that may have occurred at a hospital during the heat of COVID, I just take a pass on them. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm always happy to look at those cases, but I don't know how they've played out. They're probably playing out uh, in the litigation right now. I have a feeling a lot of cases that have been brought will end up being dismissed. Uh, and I think you have to show really egregious uh, departures, uh, almost 
you know, intentional or just gross misconduct to have success with those. So um, that's the best I could tell you about that. Glenn, all right, you're asking me, uh, do I think jurors prefer experts licensed in New York over experts licensed out of New York State? That's a great question. And thank you for asking that to share with everybody my thoughts on it. In New York, especially in New York City, where I primarily will practice uh, in the, the surrounding counties in New York, so Long Island, Westchester, Rockland, Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, um, my preference is always to get the best expert I can find with the best credentials in New York, nearby. Sometimes you just can't. You know, if they're a top doctor, they're not going to be, you know, and sometimes you're suing big, well-known hospitals and big, well-known doctors in New York and other top doctors are not going to go against their colleagues. So as much as I try to do that, sometimes I can't. So if I have to expand my map for looking for experts, I would try and keep it in the tri-state area, maybe someone in New Jersey, someone in Connecticut. Um, and if I can't find anyone there, then you, you see who you can find. Um, you're not required to have an expert who practices in New York State. You just need an expert who knows the area at issue. And so if you can't get a top physician to be your expert in New York, which is always my preference, um, then try and get a total kick-ass physician who's a real rock star from outside. And then jurors generally, you know, if the cross-exam comes up or you... I would bring it out on direct. Doctor, you're not here in New York. Um, you're from California. You flew in for this. Um, do you feel that you're qualified to talk about the standard of practice in New York? And then you have, that's a softball that you prepared that expert for, that they're going to say, well, yes, I published five books on it. I travel and I lecture to all the major hospitals in New York. Uh, I teach residencies. It's the same practice. There's nothing to distinguish this area in from New York to California. It was interesting in that case uh, where I'm talking about uh, against the two hospitals with the knee surgery in the ICU, um, my propofol expert was uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, he worked with Harvard and Brigham uh, Women's Hospital, top-notch top hospitals there. And um, one of their, when I disclosed that expert, they countered that, oh, I had an expert who's not even, you know, from New York. And I pushed back on that, basically saying, yeah, easy for them to say, uh, this is a top propofol expert and propofol is propofol, whether you're in New York or you're in California or in Massachusetts. Similarly, um, the, in the motion that they made for summary judgment, the anesthesiologist they used was a retired anesthesiologist from California. And I pressed really hard saying they didn't even get a licensed uh, anesthesiologist from New York to comment. It, it should be noted that a hospital couldn't even come up with an anesthesiologist in, from their hospital or from a nearby hospital anywhere on the East Coast or New York, which shows you know, a lot of weakness there. And, uh, and they didn't take kindly to that. Um, but that expert had written a book on anesthesiology. So ultimately, I think as long as your expert can back up their opinion with their credentials and the basis of their opinion, and they present well, that's ultimately what's going to carry it for you at the time of trial. You're much better off getting a well-credentialed, well articulate uh, expert from out of state than you are taking a lesser expert in state. 
And I think that's how it would play out in front of a jury. Hopefully that helps, Glenn. All right, uh, Trisha is asking about getting the records for the experts to review. Do I get the metadata records from the hospital that show every single time someone accessed the patient's chart and what they did? Uh, the short answer is no. If you have to get that deep into the metadata for your experts to be able to make out a case, it's probably not that strong of a case. And it's probably gonna take a while to get that kind of data. Um, you're probably gonna have to get into discovery and you're just not gonna have it as a practical matter. So the answer to that is no. I will give my expert every scratch of record that we have, that we've received prior to filing suit. And then it's not uncommon that experts will say, well, I don't see um, these orders. I don't see this, uh, these films. I don't see, I'd like to know uh, what the flow sheets show for X, Y, and Z. So that's when, when you're in litigation, you demand those uh, and you press on getting those in discovery. But it's gonna be really hard to get absolutely everything, especially what you need from potential defendants um, before you file suit and get into litigation. Suzanne, hi, you're asking, what are the ethical obligations to disclose a potential expert who disagrees that your case was malpractice? My understanding is there's no obligation. Uh, there are many times where you'll run a case by an expert and they give you a negative review and you just pass on it. Same thing, I have a case right now where I hired an expert to evaluate my client um, to potentially use uh, at trial in state court where I don't need to disclose until I get closer to trial early on. And um, I didn't like what the expert had to say or bedside manner or anything else. My client didn't like it. So I said, all right, we're going to scratch that expert. Uh, you never saw or went there because that was that's work product. You weren't going there for treatment. You were going there at my request for an evaluation. So when you hire somebody and you don't like what they say, you don't have to use them and you do not have to disclose them to anybody else. But if you do hire somebody that did an evaluation for treatment purposes, and uh, then you do. But if you hire an expert who gives you a negative review, um, by no means do you have to disclose that to anybody. All right. Um, Rosemary, uh, you're saying it's interesting to cross move for summary judgment. Yeah, listen, we have to use the tools we all do that we have. And a summary judgment motion in a medical malpractice case is not just a tool for the defense, but it's a tool they know well, and it's a tool they use well. So step up and start using it yourself. I strongly believe you get hit with a summary judgment motion in a medical malpractice case, if you've done as I've strongly recommended and you have your experts on board, cross move for summary judgment. At the very least, it shows there's an issue of fact and they're both gonna be dismissed. No one's gonna get it. And that's a good reason to move. It becomes very hard come oral argument or come a reply from the defense for them to still say there's issues of fact. Um, <laughs> I've been there. Uh, you know, this last case, I show up and they say, counsel, how can you, to the defense, how can you argue there's a there's no issues of fact? When plaintiffs has submitted affidavits from three experts showing how you guys, your clients have departed, isn't it a jury question? What are they going to say? And the defense lawyer says, well, we, we feel that, you know, for the reasons in our papers, uh, that there really is no issue and, and they can't say anything. So, it's an amazing tool. And I'm surprised when my friends who defend med mal cases say, yeah, I'm always surprised when you move for summary judgment because plaintiff's lawyers usually don't. And I'm saying, why don't they? You've got an expert, you're getting flushed out 
cross move, do it timely, okay? Cross move very quickly. And even if the note of issue has been filed and the defense moves for summary judgment on the last day, even if you're outside of the actual day, you are allowed under the law, and the case law is very clear, to cross move if the issues are identical, okay? So don't say, ah, it's too late, they got me. Know the law, know what you've got, use the tools, push back. And they'll respect that, your adversaries. All right, hey, these people know what they're doing. And you know what? What do you think is going to happen as you get closer to trial? Now that you've cross-moved, you've shown you have one, two, or three good experts who are backing you up, who have something to say. Then the defense knows, well, they're not bluffing. They've got experts. So we got to realize if we don't resolve this case, it's going to trial. Yeah, we've got good experts, but so does the plaintiff. And do we want to leave this tragic case in the hands of a jury? And I had that discussion in this case that I've been telling you about with the two hospitals that resolved at finally mediation. Good lawyers, good claims representatives. I knew all of them. I've had cases with them. And they all said, listen, we don't think there was malpractice. We think our experts are right here. We think we're on the better side of the case. But we know you've got experts. We know it would go to a jury. It's a tragic case. And we have to be realistic that the jurors may Go with your experts and not with ours, even though we feel ours are the right ones. So it's a, it's a practical decision that has to be made by all of us as lawyers. If ultimately you're going to trial, which is how you have to view every case we litigate, to know your strengths and weaknesses at mediation and settlement, you have to sort of predict what the potential outcomes are at trial. In a medical malpractice case, if both sides have experts, it's going to trial, and then it becomes likability of the plaintiff the defendant doctors, and the experts. That's what it comes down to, okay? So that's another reason why you have to have your experts on board early. All right, um, trying to get through this facts fast, folks. Um, thank you, John. Dean, uh, Dean's recommending my book. Thanks for the plug. I guess I can give a plug because all proceeds go to the charity, just like that commercial you saw aired. Um, I'm a published author. We're a top bestseller in personal injury law on Amazon. Super excited about it. Um, go ahead, go online. If you have gotten the book, please post a review. That helps get it out there and do it. But it's the book is based on my first series that I did with the Academy. Many of you attended on how to successfully litigate a personal injury case. Uh, and I am going to be turning all of my series into books so that you have it as a resource guide. So ultimately, there will be part of the Mentor Handbook series on Amazon, a book on litigating medical malpractice case. My next book due out this summer will be on trial skills. So check out the book, buy it, send it to somebody. Again, the proceeds all go to my charities. Uh, it's a win-win. All right. Um, John, how can you spend so much money on experts not knowing you have a viable case? What if the expert told me you don't have a strong case? That's a great question. So I don't go spending money willy-nilly on experts hoping I have a case. Don't get me wrong. I do it strategically. I review the records. Maybe I'll get one expert on board. Then I'll look a little deeper. I'll review more. Then I'll get another expert. It takes time. It probably took in this case I've been talking about with all these experts that I gave in the materials from the time I was retained till we filed suit, probably eight or nine months. I took my time. I kept an eye on the statute. 
I made sure we got the right experts. So it was a measured approach, which is what you need to do. I don't send, spend $70,000 on every one of my cases, but I'll spend it. I knew the damages would be big. He was earning an income. He had young children. There was pain and suffering. So you have to weigh that out. Yeah, could I have lost that case? Yes. If the defense took a hard line and took a no pay and we went to trial, I could very well have lost that case. And I told my clients that every step of the way. I feel we've got a good case, but you can always lose these cases, always. So you have to be very smart about it. So if I'm told by my experts, if everyone is telling me it's weak, you may have something, then I may not go ahead with the case. You have to trust on your expert. You have to rely, but you have to check them by doing your own research, okay? James, thank you for the compliment. I love to present and I will continue to do so as long as you will all show up and listen to me. Um, John saying also always ask the defendant on, on the EBT if they're familiar with the standard of care, right? You always wanna, it's really interesting. Sometimes you get doctors from the same facility you're questioning that are all involved in a setting treating and they both have different ideas of the standard of care. That's helpful too. All right. Um, Michael is asking, what are my thoughts on employing yes or no questions of defendant medical providers during depositions? So depositions, if you're asking, do I want to like hone in on the defendant's uh, providers and lock them into yes or no, if that's what you're asking, I do not do that. I do that at trial. My philosophy, which I've lectured previously on depositions, is you ask the open question and you let those people talk. You don't pigeonhole them. You want them to explain away their action or their inaction. That's where you get the good stuff, or that's where you get the stuff that potentially they can bury you with at trial. Why didn't you do this? You say no, but is there a reason you say no? Did you consider this? Did you rule this out? Why? Why not? Depositions always, whether it's an expert, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a lay person in an auto accident case. Who, what, why, where, when, explain. Open, open questions and depositions. That's when you get the good stuff. You get the transcript back. You get great stuff from their answers. And then you flip it around for summary judgment, for cross-examination. Amy is asking, does opposing counsel have access to writings or materials shared by your expert while working up the case and providing merit at the start? The answer is no. They're not allowed to see drafts. They're not allowed to see work product. That is all protected. You do not have to exchange reports in state court in New York. Federal court's another story. We could talk about that another time, but most people don't bring medical malpractice cases in federal court. They're usually in state court and certainly in New York. Your back and forth with your experts is privileged. It is a work product attorney, work product privilege. They're not entitled to any of it. And if there's specific factors or specific cases, there may be a reason that it would come up, but all told, nothing's coming out. And just make sure in your email correspondence have the expert put confidential communication in the subject matter. I always do that. So every email back and forth, case so-and-so reviews, confidential communication. That helps. All right. Um, uh, 
All right, I'm being asked, I'm sorry if I pronounce your name improperly, Alexander is asking, what is my guideline to determining good settlement offers? All right. That question has prompted me as a reminder of another way to find good experts, because they're both the same. If you're not familiar with it, the New York Jury Verdict Reporter, and they have their counterparts in other states as well. It's the Verdict Reporter. It's, I believe it's National Jury Verdict Reporter. Um, the New York Jury Verdict Reporter is an excellent resource uh, to call. You can look them up and get their phone number. They are the ones that pub publish um, biweekly, monthly, the jury verdict reporter, where they publish uh, the latest settlements, verdicts, all of that. And they have such a database going back decades, they've been around as long as I've been practicing and beyond, that you can contact them and ask them to do a search for you. You could do a search by all these different variables. You could do a search on experts. So let's say you have a case involving propofol infusion. You can ask them, can they do a search in their database for any expert uh, on propofol infusion? Maybe it's an orthopedic injury involving a hip uh, injury, a hip repair. Uh, you can have them search medical malpractice case, 60-year-old patient, uh, medical expert, um, orthopedics involving a hip. So that's another great way and a good resource to request a search and find any kind of expert you need. And you could limit it by year. Uh, thank you, uh, John, for posting that on the case blog, whatever you have in there. Um, you can also, Alexander, you can search for values. So let's say you have a case involving, this is an auto or med mal, but this is a med mal program. So let's say you have a case where um, failure to diagnose breast cancer in a 35-year-old woman, and you want to find out what those cases generally go for. You could contact the jury verdict reporter, say, can you give me a list of all cases involving a failure to timely diagnose breast cancer, women aged 30 and up, or however you want to do it, um, that involved verdicts or settlements in excess of $100,000. And they can do that, and they can send them all back to you. And you can limit it, which I suggest you do to like the last 10 years, because a, a settlement or verdict from 20 years ago is not going to be today's value. And they'll come up with stuff. And that's one way to find out. Another way to find out values of cases is to have a one-on-one -on -one with me, reach out to other experts, uh, Glenn Verchik, uh, other experts, defense lawyers, if you have relationships with them, uh, ask them what they see it. Um, I have good relationships I've developed over the years with adversaries, and they'll reach out to me. Hey, I'm defending this case. I'm good friends with a claims representative at a top hospital in New York uh, who we've litigated cases against. And he reaches out to me. Hey, can I run this one by you? What do you think? Because I put X dollars on it, and I want to know if, if you think that's low or high. And I'll tell him what I would take on the case, and it's invaluable to him. And I'll do the same. What do you think this case is worth? And then it's ironic when we have cases together, right? He's like, well, I see what you're saying, but we're not seeing it that way. I'm like, all right. But, you know, talking to others, talking to others in this area, I will very frequently reach out to my colleagues in this area and get their opinions on value. But you got to give it to them straight. You can't sugarcoat your case. You got to tell them what you've got, what the defense is saying, what the upside, downside, what your venue is. We're going to talk about venue um, next month. Uh, when we get into commencing the action, there are a lot of factors. In a medical malpractice case, I said this in, our, in part one, 
I believe the statistics are generally that at trial, about 80% of these are defense verdicts. So you got to hope you're in that 20% and you've got that case. But knowing that you got an 80% chance of losing, you cannot be looking for full top verdict, top sustainable value. You have to be willing to take a haircut, right? I've taken a lot of haircuts over the years, I guess. Um, but you have to, and depending on whether you're early on in the case, later on in the case, burn in a hand, you know, how long you have till trial, whether you're in a friendly venue, an unfriendly venue, whether there's likely going to be, hey, you may be in the Bronx and think you're going to get a $100 million verdict, but you know it's going to be appealed. And appeals now in the first department could take a couple of years. Do you want to go that route? So there's so many factors. How likable is your client? How likable is the defendant? Um, how strong is that? Is the departure? How strong is the causation? All these things have to go into the pot to decide what your case is really worth. And some cases settle for different numbers. We've all seen it, similar fact patterns. Some carriers offer more, some offer less. Some clients want more, some clients want less. Some lawyers are greedier than others. I mean, my philosophy at my firm, and there's no surprise here, we are not, we do not squeeze our adversaries for the last dime. Okay. We know what's reasonable and we explain to our clients, and I've talked about this and it's in my book. Uh, I have a whole section in the how to successfully litigate a personal injury case on how to address settlement and how to address it with your clients and how to talk about ranges high in the range, low in the range. So I encourage you to, to get the book for that purpose. And that's how we look at it. Okay. Patrick is asking about a defense trial subpoena directed to the expert uh, asking for communications. Um, yeah, I would move to quash that. So just because someone subpoenas something, you push back, you make a motion to quash, Q-U-A-S-H, quash the subpoena, and that they're not entitled to it because it's a work product. And, uh, and then you cite the law and then, you know, it's only if the judge produces it. So if you're worried about any of that, then you may not want to have certain things in writing. You may just want to have verbal calls about it. Tell the expert, I don't want a report. We'll talk about it. I'll take notes on where you see the departures are and you can do it that way. But that's work product. So you, you push hard back against that. They can't subpoena uh, your correspondence with your experts prior to trial. All right. Um, all right. Barbara is asking, can I repeat how you can access verdicts in cases? New York jury verdict reporter. Google that. You call the main number. And I think the number still, when you get the machine, you press three and that'll push you in touch with someone who can help run a search. It'll probably cost you about 300 bucks, give or take. You may have coupons or not uh, to get a search. So I recommend doing that. It's very helpful. Um, yeah, Patrick, for a plaintiff's testifying expert, you know, again, you move to quash subpoenas, you push back, um, and you don't exchange reports. So that's the way you stay away from all of that. So with that being said, it's 227. I thank you all. I'm going to let um, Michelle do the final wrap-up and closing but I wanna encourage you to show up for part three. We're gonna work our whole way through this. Uh, hopefully you got some stuff out of this. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, thank you. If you haven't listened to my podcast, it might be worth checking out the Mentor ESQ podcast. 
Uh, my website is a good place to buy swag for pro, for a charity. It's a good place to book one-on-ones with me, which I love doing. Love meeting with lawyers. And uh, I'd love a great review for my podcast and great reviews for my book on Amazon because that just helps keep all this going to help all of you and to help all these good causes. So thanks, everybody. Hope to see you March 10th.